0: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to The Academic Life, a podcast channel here on New Books Network. I'm Dr. Christina Gessler, one of your hosts of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to your other host, Dr. Dana Malone, about qualitative research and what it is, and about her experience of researching in her own backyard.
1: Welcome, Dana. Thank you, Christina. Thank you so much. I'm excited about this episode and this conversation
0: I am too. We were just speaking a minute ago off air on how we planned this conversation a year ago. So for everybody listening who thinks their timeline is kind of slow, um, (laughs) this is how these things work. Most of our listeners know you. They know that you are the co-producer and co-host of Academic Life with me that will have some new people joining us for the first time. So for everyone, will you please tell us about yourself?
1: Sure. Sure. Thank you. Thank you. So I'm Dr. Dana Malone, and I am, as Christina said, one of the co-producers and co-hosts on the Academic Life channel, which has been such a fun um, and exciting venture that I get to do with Christina, and I love doing it. Um, currently, I am an independent scholar, and so I always like to kind of explain that for myself because that can mean a lot of different things for different people, and so um so right now for myself, I have chosen to kind of set my career up that way because I'm the primary caregiver to my two kids. And um, so I do a smattering of things on a contract basis. Um, so I do all the academic things. I just do them on an independent contract basis. So I um, I still write. Um, I have a publication coming out soon and in, um, in an edited book. And um, so I write and I um, I teach on a contract basis. So I'm an adjunct faculty in um, a master's of higher ed Um program. And, um, and I traveled, well, I used to travel and speak on my research when people did that. Um, and, and I podcast now and, um, so, and I, and I do consulting as well. Um, so just a little bit. So today we're talking about qualitative research and, and some of the specific, um, strategies and things that I, I used, um, when I did my study that became from single to serious. Um, and so that's like a whole version of, of, my career, my CV and my research on dating and sexuality and, um, religious identities, specifically within evangelical college colleges, American evangelical colleges. But then I also do um, assessment and evaluation in higher education. So that's actually what I teach and what I have um, done as a practitioner for many years. And so that's kind of my other hat in higher ed. So that's um, something else that I do and I consult on and I um, travel and speak um, on that. And, and I'm developing some Um, a a new model on that. And, and that may hopefully be like the next, uh, the next book. So that's kind of a little bit about me and my, my research areas and interests. Um, I do hold a PhD in, um, uh, educational policy with a focus on higher ed and my sub areas are, are gender and religion, um, identities and student cultures and things like that. So that's a little bit about, um, I guess, my professional background. Um, I am based in the Philadelphia area and um, I grew up in uh, North Jersey. And so I'm kind of a, a Northeastern girl, but I um, spent many years um, in the South and I did my doc work at University of Kentucky. So um, as a, if, if you are a, a regular listener, I've had a lot of um, colleagues on um, and interviewed because I've been very fortunate to have had so many um, wonderful um, connections through the years and, and by way of that. So I've kind of made my way around the Eastern seaboard a bit and landed back up here in the Northeast. And that's kind of a little bit about me and what I do.
0: And it was also a great description of what it feels like and is like to be an independent scholar or to be <laughs> contingent faculty. It's so many different hats um, all the time even when you're not wearing one, you have to be aware of where the other one is. Where's the other hat? How soon do I have to put it on and what am I doing to be ready for it? Um, I think that was a wonderful description of how it feels, what
1: it takes. Well, well, it's all the things of academic life. Sorry, it's all the things of academic life. You just do it on a contract basis.
0: (laughs) Yeah, and I think it illuminates um, for people who are listening um, why uh, independent and contingent faculty uh, are raising so many questions right now. And in um, the higher ed discourse about pay and about Mm. contract stability and things, because moving through these many contracts and these many things in a year, um, it, it, it opens up all of those questions.
1: Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Agreed. Um, Agreed.
0: And so I want to unpack a little bit. um, you talked about your higher ed um, experience when you were a student uh, in your introduction. And part of that is why we're here today. We're talking about uh, qualitative research and uh, what it was like for you to navigate research in uh, your own backyard. And you were doing that when you were writing your project uh, from single to serious relationships, gender, and sexuality on American evangelical campuses, which was a dual project. It was your, um, PhD research, and it was the book that you published with um, Rutgers. Mm -hmm. So if we could circle back a bit to that part of your educational journey, how did you settle on this topic? And how did you um, decide that the right thing for you was in fact to do a qualitative project in your own
1: backyard? Um, Good question, Christina. Thank you. (laughs) Um, So I I, I did attend an evangelical college for my undergrad. Um, and, and so this book is, you know, and I, I do write about this, uh, pretty openly in the introduction. And so, um, but I'll recap here for folks who haven't read that or or haven't had a chance to. So I, you know, I do say this is, this is a personal project. This came out of my biography as I, as I say often, and, um, and even just my explaining like where I come from. So I, um, and from North Jersey, um, my family, uh, my parents are um, children of immigrants. And so I'm second generation U.S. born Armenian American. So my whole family, um, you know, is from like New York, New Jersey area. And that was my whole life until I went to college. And then I packed up and kind of randomly decided to go to a fairly conservative uh, evangelical school in the American South. Um, when I had grown up in North Jersey and my parents had grown up in New York. And so, and that was kind of the world I knew. So that was a big change for me. So, um, so I, I do write in the book that that first year, um, first, you know, week almost on campus was kind of the beginning of this project because it was then that I really started thinking about, um, relationships and, um, You know how they intersect with gender and religious identities, and specifically an evangelical uh, religious subculture. And um, because you know relationships were so prevalent, like and like they were so focused on, they were so so much. Like everybody was talking about about them. Even the um, campus administration, it just felt like it was a big focus. And you know, partnering up was not a focus of mine at the time. So I was really struck by that, and that was not part of my previous cultural experience. Um, even though I had attended various conservative, uh, Protestant churches growing up and, and one, I guess you would, you would characterize it as an evangelical, um, church in the Northeast. It was just very different in the South. And so that was my undergrad experience. I I went to, and I ended up staying, um, I, I made some great friends and I had some good mentors and I ended up staying all four years, even though in a lot of ways, I kind of felt like a, a bit of a fish out of water culturally. Um, but it ended up being a, a positive experience for me, and then I stayed in, in that world a bit, and I worked in that world as a student affairs ad, ad, um, administrator, and I worked with college students on those campuses. And so, um, when I started my doc work, I just had, you know, I just knew I was fascinated with this topic, and I wanted to explore it further, and so it just made sense. Um, and I, I actually had a meeting with who became my chair of, of my doc program. I had a meeting with her before I ever enrolled, um, at the university of Kentucky. Um, I, I had made a friend and, and she was in some classes with her and she said, you should meet with this, this, um, professor. And she had a dual appointment in gender studies and ed policy. And I met with her what, cause I was considering, you know, applying there and told her about what I was thinking about for my project. And she just loved it from day one. It was super supportive. And, you know, after all the researching and trying to figure out what's the best program, where should I be, um, you know, I decided on UK and um, and I'm really glad I did. I had a great experience and I ended up doing the project that I talked to her about in her office. You know, you know, you fine tune it and things, but the broad strokes were there from the beginning. I kind of knew the themes that I wanted to study. And, um, and so that's kind of how You know how I got from you know going to an evangelical school as an undergrad to you know having these experiences as a student, as a student affairs professional. I I did live in work on these campuses and wanted to really explore this topic. And then that was definitely what I wanted to do in my grad work. And I found a supporter um, of of that and and had a great experience, um, you know, researching it and and studying it um, as a doc student.
0: So let's start unpacking research itself. Can you tell us the difference between qualitative and quantitative research and why one versus the other was right for your study?
1: Um, Well, and, you know, it's most basic form, you know, qualitative um, and quantitative, you kind of deal with, it's more numbers, it's, it's more statistics. um, You know, it's, it's, there's a different it's, – it's deductive reasoning versus inductive reasoning. Qualitative is more capturing um, experiences and, and the meaning people are making, and the methodology is very different. You tend to do more interviews and focus groups and participant observation, um, just depending on the type of project or phenomenology, um, more on, this, on the experience um, and, and meaning that people are uh, making of things. And, it, and it's more around narratives – Um, and, and so that just, um, that just always drew me more. Um, and the analysis is, is more of that. You can kind of do almost like a quantitative analysis. You know, you can count up the number of times somebody, you know, says a particular word or things like that and and still do a quantitative type analysis with even, you know, narrative and, and qualitative of work, but that wasn't my approach, um, at all. And so I, I truly took, um, um, you know, a qualitative, uh, approach where I was, um, the other main thing, I guess I would say on the analysis is just, you know, your findings, um, with qualitative work findings are not considered generalizable. You don't have a large sample size. Um, you know, you're not trying to, to generalize your findings to, um, a, a larger, um, context, it's, it's more context specific, um, where with, with quantitative, you're looking, you know, you're wanting to get larger numbers so you can make your, so your findings can be significant, um, so, uh, statistically significant. So you can make more generalizable statements about your findings. And, and it's just a very different, um, just a very different purpose, I guess, um, and, and method of which you go about it. So, that's a very rough, <laughs> rough definition, um, dif- differentiation, but, um, and so in qualitative, you know, your, it's more narrative based, it's more experience based, um, and the methods specifically that I used, um, I, I used, uh, um, Focus groups. I did focus groups, and then I did in-depth individual interviews. Um, I did participant observation, where I went onto each um, campus. I, I interviewed. Um, I did. I had two two different campuses where I did my my research, and um, I went and I observed events and. Um, you know, just campus happenings. Um, I also did some archival work in their ar- archives and I did artifact analysis um, where I was, you know, looking at student publications like newspapers and, you know, flyers around campus and things like that and, and analyzed um, that in my data as well. And all of those are uh, very, uh, very common, typical qualitative uh, methodologies that, that you would use.
0: Can you tell us a lot about your research designs at the back of the book and the different appendices? Um, one of the things you tell us is that you adopted a feminist research ethic. Um, and I know from talking to you, uh, because you are my co-producer and my co-host, that you have um, background also in some anthropology and sociology. Can you talk to us about um, research methods um, and ethics that were important to you to employ in this study?
1: Sure. So when I talk about um, my feminist research ethic, um, you know, that's that entails a lot of different things. It's it's the idea of attending to power dynamics that are present um, when we research. Um, and, and so, you know, in order to kind of minimize uh, power dynamics, um, you know, I thought about that a lot. And how would I do that with, um, you know, interviewing students at the time? I was in my early thirties. Um, and so, you know, I was, I was older than the, than the people I was interviewing and, you know, I was, you know, working on a a doctorate and they were undergrads. And so there's different levels of, you know, power dynamics to, to consider. And, um, and so for me, what I did was, you know, you try to really create a, um, a, a partnership, um, or I tried to create a partnership with my participants who were college students, and and you know foster equity in that relationship, and um, and so I I kind of had a spiel that I would say at the beginning of focus groups or interviews, and kind of explain a little bit about who I was and how I saw this process going, how I viewed it, and I let them know that I saw them as you know, um, that they were in my mind, experts on the topic that I wasn't the expert here. They were the expert. Now I had, you know, studied and, and I had, you know, all my literature and all these different things. Right. But what I went in to talk to them about intimate relationships on their campus and how they worked and what they looked like and what people did and the traditions, I wasn't the expert on that. They were the expert on that. And so, um, So I would, you know, let them know the beginning that that's, that was kind of my view that I'm here to learn um, and learn from you. And you guys are the experts as students of this campus, you know, the culture, you know, you know, what's happening, you know, what people are doing and what the traditions are and what the unspoken rules are. And, and I'm here to learn that. Um, And so, you know, by doing that, you know, it's a way to, to kind of level, help them You know, help all of us kind of level the playing field there in a way as much as we can, and to you know mitigate those power dynamics if they feel intimidated or they feel like you know all the power is with me now. And I recognize that I was the researcher; I decided which questions to ask, and you know led and guided that discussion. Um, But also trying to leave room for you know, and in qualitative design, you do that—you have a plan, but you leave room for it to organically um, evolve, uh, in, in whatever way it needs to. So, you know, leaving space in that conversation for the topics and the issues that they bring up that I didn't anticipate that they seem really passionate about, that they really want to talk about, that's important to, to, um, unpack together. And so, um, and I let them know that too, that I have a set of questions that I want to ask, but, you know, we can talk about different things as well, based on what you guys feel is important and what comes up in this in this conversation. So that, to me, um, you know, the power dynamics um, is a big part of the feminist research ethic and attending to obviously gendered um, issues and and inequalities. Um, but for me, the main piece of that in that scenario was um, was the power dynamics. Um, and and I will say this too, also you know, I I did struggle. And so the reason one of the things I write about in this, I I think I write about this in the method, remind me if if I'm wrong, um, is the idea of, you know, with this particular topic, you know, this was sort of a sort of a dangerous topic to be talking about, you know, talking about sexuality and sexual practices, and, you know, even intimate relationships generally, you know, can be very uncomfortable in in a, in those settings in a conservative, you know, campus setting, evangelical setting, because, and I say that because on these campuses, you know, um, sexual relations of any type was prohibited. So, you know, same sex or heterosexual, um, interactions at all were prohibited. And if students were found to be engaging in that, you know, they could be, um, you know, expelled from the school, like that could happen. And so, you know, in some ways really unpacking all the dynamics of these, um, intimate relationships, you know, was kind of, could be considered dangerous for some students and uncomfortable. And so I thought really hard about how do I honor my feminist research ethic in that I want to create an open relationship with them and be as open and, and candid as I can. But I also wanted to protect, um, the research process. And I didn't want to divulge too much about my previous history um, and maybe jeopardize the comfort level that they may have in sharing things with me because I had worked at similar campuses and I had been in a policy enforcement role and I didn't want, you know, any transference, you know, to use a counseling term where they might put, you know, their thoughts and feelings around, you know, some of those, those authorities on their own campus onto me. And that might, um, hinder, you know, the rapport we develop in the room around the topic. And so I really struggled with that because my feminist research ethic really, um, you know, uh, drew me to want to be as open and candid as possible, but I also wanted to, you know, be careful about how much I shared, um, so that I didn't, I didn't negatively affect the rapport that we were trying to establish, um, and so where I landed on that is that I had decided that I would be open and honest with them if they asked me questions, but there was just some information I didn't offer at the onset, on the onset of the, of the interview or the, or the focus group or the relationship. And I did have students ask me like at the end of a focus group or at the end of an interview, they would ask me some questions about my own history and my own background in some of these areas. And I, and I answered them honestly and candidly. Um, and I think that worked because we had already had an established rapport Um, At that point. Does that make sense?
0: It does. So, to unpack this uh, a little bit more for particularly new researchers who, for a variety of reasons, mostly pandemic related at the point that we're taping, have not been face to face with focus groups yet. They've been trying to put together their research as best they can with what they're allowed to safely do. So, for your study, did you do the lit review and the archival research with the student newspapers and things like that first and then meet with your focus groups. What order did you conduct the various components of this study's research?
1: Um, well because I went into my program with a pretty good idea of the kind of project I was going to do, um, the themes like the you know what I was going to explore, I you know took every opportunity throughout my program to tailor any papers, any projects, anything like that to my topic. So I had done a lot of the literature review um, by the time I got to the research, for sure. I had done that. I had done that throughout my entire program. And then I did that for my qualifying exams um, after my coursework was done. So the literature review was mostly done at that point. Um, And I used the literature review and just all of the reading I had done as almost like heuristic devices where they were – you know, the concepts that I read – Um, and, and theories and ideas, um, enabled me to kind of, um, craft questions and ideas going into the study itself. Now the archival work I did at the same time that I did my field work. So I had done all of the literature review, um, and everything previous, um, came up, you know, wrote my, um, And and I actually did um, a document for one of my courses uh, where, for every question on my my interview protocol, I had like I mapped it to all the different uh, references in the literature, so you could see why like why I'm asking this question, you know, and and where where I could trace that back to whether it was someone else's project um, because I had looked at two other books um, and projects in particular um, who were both of which were very close into, into what I was doing. And I um, borrowed some of, you know, went to their method section and read about what they did and how they approached it. And, um, and so that really informs my interview protocol, the questions that I asked in both the focus groups and the interviews. So the lit review was done first. And then um, I spent a semester kind of focused on each campus. And when I was on each campus is when I did the archival work in their actual like archives in their libraries.
0: So for listeners who maybe haven't read the book yet, um, you chose two different campuses who, um, because this is a qualitative study and not a quantitative study, it is based on people sharing uh, their personal narratives with you. You're very careful not to divulge anything that will let us know what these two campuses are. You describe one as the large campus and one as the small campus, um, and you conducted research on both of these two campuses and you also are careful not to let us know too many identifying factors on the students who spoke with you so that their privacy is protected as well. Are you able to tell us at all how you were able to select those two campuses and how you dealt with gatekeepers to be able to come onto campus and create these studies?
1: Um, Sure. I... I was, as I said, I, I had attended and I had worked at some, and um, so I was, I was pretty familiar with the evangelical college um, scene and and you know uh, group <laughs> of, of campuses at that point, point. and so I was aware of of many campuses, and um, I wanted to pick two that were similar. But different at the same time. And and I write about that in the book too, about how they're different, that they're similar in a lot of ways of their Christ-centered mission and, you know, the ultimate aim of what they were trying to do with, um, you know, uh, with educating students in, you know, in, a, in, in a way that, you know, melds their, their faith and, you know, their scholarship and how, you know, their, their faith, um, you know, the, uh, is kind of brought into every area of campus life. Um, so that was very similar. Um, a lot of the rules and regulations were pretty similar. But because the size difference, um, one was for evangelical schools, you know, decent decently bigger, and one was much smaller. And so there were different cultural differences on, you know, what, what it felt to experience campus life, they were different. And so that did create some differences as well. And so I wanted, you know, campuses that were similar, but then also had some unique aspects to them. Um, and so those two kind of fit. And I also, you know, I did have contacts at each campus. And so that was part of it. It was also, um, you know, just a, a very practical decision as well as to, uh, exactly what you said, the gatekeeping, like, um, where I had access and who was willing to let me come in and, um, you know, and conduct this study, and and one of the things I I talk about when I talk about um you know the methods of of this study is because you are as I said it's you know it is kind of a risky sort of dangerous topic when you start getting into sexuality and a lot of campuses you know they don't, really, they, don't they don't necessarily want you coming in and asking a bunch of questions about that and so I. Um, you know, I did a. This is a study of perceptions. Um, so my study wasn't necessarily I'm going to come in and ask you about your personal sexual experiences and all of that. But it was a. It was a study of perceptions, how students perceived that relationships were done and things like that. Um, and and I think I may have even talked about this when you interviewed me for the book itself. But you know that ended up. Being a really beneficial uh, decision, um, even though it was a practical decision, it was it was part of a gatekeeping decision that felt safer, I think, for campuses, um, for gatekeepers at these campuses, that I was coming in and I wasn't necessarily going to be asking a ton of direct questions um, about students' sexual practices, but I was asking about perceptions of how relationships form and and function and you know, um, their practices around them and traditions and unspoken codes and things like that. Um, and so I ended up being able to get a lot of rich narratives from students who actually had not been successful, um, in the campus, you know, dating scene and marketplace, uh, relational marketplace. And so they didn't have a ton of personal experience dating to share with me, but they had a lot of Stories of their attempts and how things didn't work out and things like that. So that wouldn't have I wouldn't have captured those stories had I made it a, a criteria of the study to of her, or for participation in the study that you have had to have had x number of successful you know either dating or sexual relationships. Like there there wasn't anything like that. It was just perceptions. But then inevitably, students talk to you about even though we're talking about their perceptions of how things um, generally work on their campus. Of course, most of them, by the time we got to an individual interview, were sharing with me pretty personally about their own experiences, navigating that campus scene. And that's where a lot of the really rich data came from. Um, so some of it was, um, you know, context that I had had, and I did go with each campus. I did go through, you know, their version of IRB, um, their version of you know the review process. Um, in addition to, I had gone through all of that through my home institution um, um, at UK, and then had done that for each of the campuses. So the the way I set that study up did help with the gatekeeping for sure.
0: Let's break down a couple more terms. You just referred to IRB. Can you tell us what that is? And can you also tell us what bracketing is and how that affected this project?
1: IRB is kind of your institutional review board. So every campus um, usually has an institutional review board um, that uh, uh, you have for a study, like you have to get IRB approval. So you go through all of the steps and the applications um, to make sure that in the review process to make sure that you're doing your study in an appropriate and ethical way and attending to all the different, um, things that you need to attend to, to protect, um, you know, participants or, um, anyone involved in the study. And so every piece of this study is, is reviewed. So from my, you know, from, um, from my, uh, Email recruitment, I had to have that drafted to my interview and focus group protocols, to my consent forms. So, every piece that I created for participation in the study, um, even in that process, you talk about how you're going to protect, how you're going to collect um, or generate the data, how you're going to store the data, how it's going to be protected, um, where you're going to keep it, who has access to it. There were all those different components that are part of that review process so that your project is rev- is approved and you're able to proceed and and do that. So I did that through my home institution at University of Kentucky, and then I went through whatever appropriate uh, review process was necessary on on each of the campuses where I did my research. And theirs were a bit smaller and not as rigorous as, as what I had to go through at UK because they were smaller campuses. But... Um, and, and for them, you know, knowing that I had gone through that very rigorous process, um, you know, through my university, um, my home university helped, you know, get uh, open the doors. And, and you know, for, for me there, although there were some, you know, considerations and things that they they asked me, again, mostly around the nature of the topic that I was studying on their campus. Does that help?
0: It does. <laughs> and can you also tell us about bracketing?
1: Okay. So bracketing, um, bracketing is a, is a term, um, is a strategy in in qualitative work where, um, you, well, I will say this. So, so very apropos to qualitative work. Sometimes there's not a, a one definition for what bracketing is. Um, in, in the research there's in the scholarship, there's varying definitions. People define it different ways. Um, and, and there's different ways to enact bracketing, which, um, is, like I said, very apropos for qualitative work. For those of us who do that, you know, you're kind of used to ambiguity and fluidity. Um, and so some consider bracketing, it's it's sort of this process of sorting out um, the researcher's experience with a particular phenomenon or a research topic. Um, it also can be thought of as a process of suspending the researcher's biases, assumptions, their theories, or their previous experiences with a particular topic. Um, and so bracketing became a very important, you know, component for me because I was researching in what we call like in your own backyard. And I was researching in in a context that I was pretty familiar with already, that I had already had a lot of experiences in myself as a student, um, you know, as a staff member. Um, and so, you know, it was important for me to think about how was I going to monitor my own previous experiences and ideas about this topic um, in this context um, as I went in and did the research so that you know it's um, I'm attending to what I'm hearing um, and and not bringing, you know, not letting my own previous ideas cloud wh- what I'm experiencing. So um, you know there's also different, you know, there's, there's different, uh, sides of this. Some, you know, some have argued that it's not possible at all to bracket. Um, and, and that's almost like a misnomer and, you know, and then, other you know, I think where we've come to at this point or the way that I view it and, and other uh, others, um, in, in, in the research, you know, say this as well. I don't know that you can fully do that. Like, I, I, I do think it's, it's hard to say I'm completely going to just, you know, that's not going to, to be there. Um, but it, bracketing is a way to manage it. So I, I I see it as as that. I don't I don't believe I can fully, um, completely you know ik, that that ignore or or set aside all of that previous experience and knowledge and understanding that I have um, when I go into that research. So, I, so you do bring that in, but bracketing is is a way to manage it. Um, it's a way to. Um, to make sure that you are recognizing that you, it's a reflexive process, so that you're recognizing that those do exist. That I do have prior experience here. I do have thoughts and ideas and and um, theories ab- about this area, this topic, um, and this culture already. Um, and so I recognize that. Um, but I do need to kind of set that aside temporarily um, and, and make sure that I'm fully attending to what I'm hearing and, and allow what the participants are sharing um, to come through to um, also when I'm, I'm there on campus and I'm, you know, doing my observations of events or, you know, just the campus itself, um, that I'm, I'm attending to what I see and not bringing and not letting my previous experiences or ideas cloud that if that makes sense. Um, And so for me, the way I viewed it, it was almost like this idea of like, I put it on the shelf. So I put it like, I, I, I'm able to step back from myself enough in a reflexive process to understand that I have all of these experiences and this, this knowledge and this understanding and these theories and ideas about what's happening. And so I can step back. I can acknowledge that I can almost like put it in a box and put it up on the shelf temporarily. That's like, you know, as best as you can so that you can attend, and see as clearly as you can what's happening. Because in qualitative work, we say, you know, the research the researcher is the instrument. So, you know, I am the instrument as I am observing things on campus, as I am doing artifact analysis, as I am reading certain things, I am the lens through which this is all happening, as I am the instrument the research instrument. And so, you know, managing it is the best you can do. So you go in and and I did my interviews and I tried to Really allow um, the students to really share what what their experience was and what they felt and what they saw and what they experienced, and um, and I took all that in and I captured that. And then when it was appropriate and it was time, I went back to that shelf and I took that box back off the shelf with all the things I thought I knew and all of my previous experiences, and I lay out the things in that box next to all the things. All, all the narratives and all of the data that I was able to capture from the students and my participants. And I kind of, you know, com- you know, compare and I, I mix, how does that all play together? Um, and so that's kind of what bracketing is and a little bit about how I understood it. And then I can talk a little bit about um, my methods of bracketing specifically, if you'd like, but I, I'll let you jump in <laughs> as to if any of that made sense. <laughs>
0: It, it made a lot of sense. And I think it's really important for us to to hear how you approach that self-awareness and how you had to do almost a dance with it. Um, the idea that any of us are objective is um, an outdated idea. Um, and yet I think academia often dangles that in front of us. Um, how objective can you be and, and how um, can you set your biases aside? And one of the ways that you did that was to look at them and say, okay, these are biases, these are objectives, these are ways that I approach this, and to just be self-aware. Um, but you also built some checks and balances into the ways you would prever- preserve the students' voices so that their voices would be what you would have to keep referring to and not your own. And that involved recording uh, the interviews that you did and also um, doing a certain amount of uh, written uh, work with them as well. Can you talk about ways that you captured the student voices so that when you needed to, you could fact check that this is what they said and not what your assumption was that they said?
1: Oh, sure, sure. Um, and I also, so I'm I'm, I'm going to mix that answer in with my specific methods of bracketing because there are different ways that you, uh, strategies for bracketing. Um, so I, I recorded... Um, the focus group. I recorded everything. So every session I had with participants, I recorded. So they were um, audio recorded. So all of all of my focus groups were audio recorded, <clears throat> as well as my individual interviews. And so they were recorded, and then they were transcribed. And when I did the focus groups. Um, i also had a co-facilitator in the focus group because i was running the focus group and answer asking the questions and conducting it i was it was it would be too hard for me to take a bunch of to to do the observing and take notes on the dynamics in the room and who was doing what and who was wearing what and all of that so i had a co-facilitator with me and i was very fortunate that my co-facilitator was, was a friend of mine. She was, um, further along in my program than I, I think she might've even graduated, had already graduated at that point. Um, we came through the same program. Um, and she was familiar with evangelical colleges as well. So she had worked at some and she had attended some, and there was about a 10 or 15, I'm not exactly sure, 10 or 15 year difference between us. And so there was, she was older. And so even having her there, um, she, she drew a diagram of the, of the focus of the room of who sat where she had extensive notes on what people were, what students were wearing, just all of the observational, um, notes that you would do when you do qualitative work. And she was able to do that for me. And, and we did a debrief after, uh, the session and, you know, and, and she gave me, and she had pages of notes that she took during the session itself. And of course we had the recording. So I knew who was saying what. Um, but I had then pages of her observational notes. Um, and she was a trained trained qualitative researcher as well at that point. And so it was really that was um, that was really amazing for me to be able to to have her there with me. And she came. She did both both campuses with me. She traveled out um, of state where we went to the other campus because um, there, you know my, the campuses I studied were in two different states and she she did, was able to travel and, and she did the same thing for me um, at the other campus um, for the focus groups. And so um, So that was part of it. yeah, so I recorded I audio recorded and then they all of the transcripts from all of the focus groups and the interviews were transcribed. Um, so I, and then I, you know, obviously like I, then I did my analysis of, I just spent months with those documents um, and I did my own analysis. I didn't use a, a program um, uh, and I, we can, I mean, we can maybe talk about that, but I, I, I do want to mention, so the method specifically of bracketing that I use where I, I did memo writing. So I would write different types of memos, autobiographical memos about my own experience, my own autobiography biographical experiences in these settings and how they were, you know, and managing that as I was doing the research. Um, I wrote theoretical, um, memos about theoretical ideas I was having about my observations, about my hunches and my insights, things like that throughout the research process. So, um, and those were especially true after, you know, after I conducted the focus groups or the interviews and because, and then I also did, um, bracket what are like bracketing interviews um, where I would talk with different people and kind of check in with them um, and one of the people I did that with was my co-facilitator because she was very you know she was a trained uh, researcher she was in the room with me um, and and she was also familiar with these kinds of campuses as well so I would, you know, talk to her about things that I was thinking or feeling. And, you know, am I perceiving this correctly? Or am I just putting my own thing on this? Um, but I had those bracketing interviews with other people as well with my committee members. And most of my committee members were not insiders to, you know, an evangelical um, campus culture. I had one member, one outside member who was, and so she kind of served that role in there, but most of my committee members were not familiar with the setting. And so they kind of provided the outsider perspective for me. And, and then I did, um, also I did interviews or conversations with, um, with other evangelical college campus insiders, um, some within the Settings that I was researching, and then some with other campuses that I was just familiar with, um, and that's also another you know qualitative that that those interviews served two purposes. They also were co- what we call member checking in qualitative work, where you start to develop ideas. Um, this is what I think I'm hearing. This is kind of what I'm how I'm making sense of this, and you go back and you check in with participants or other people. Like I did that with some administrators on the campuses that I people that I talked with, um, and said, here's what I'm seeing. Here's what I'm thinking. Does this, does this track, does this make sense? Um, and so those were kind of the strategies that I used to be able to, um, manage my own experience and my own voice alongside my participants and, um, and the data that we were generating.
0: One of the questions that research raises, particularly in the modern era is, can't you just do it all virtually? Can't you do it through email and zoom and questionnaires and phone calls um, and you can certainly do a lot that way but there are certain things that um, you only find out in person what were some of the um, what were some of the things you couldn't duplicate um, through any other method that you had to be there in person talking to people hmm
1: Oh, that's a good one. Um, And we kind of talked about this beforehand that I, 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 I know people who are doing interviews. I have colleagues that I know who people who are doing their research on zoom and doing interviews on zoom. And I have not had that experience. Um, I think the thing that would be hard, like if just in the context of my own study, if I had to like, imagine what it would have been like to try to do this study, like today, in the current climate and the situation. Um, I think the focus groups more than anything. So from the way I set up my study is the focus groups came first. So on each campus, I did a series of focus groups, uh, with eight to 10 students in the room at a time. And from there, I, you know, they, they filled out at the end, they filled out some, you know, uh, questionnaire information and things. And, and, and on there is where I asked them if they would be willing to, to participate in, in individual interviews, And where we could kind of explore some of these themes and other themes, uh, more in depthly in a one-on-one scenario. Um, but the dynamic in the room, and it happened with every focus group, the dynamic in the room between the students with multiple of them, you know, in the room from different walks of life, from different parts of campus coming together to talk about this topic. That's rarely talked about so candidly and openly, um, you know each of my most of my focus groups went 2 hours or longer um which was you know several of them went over the allotted time because they were just students were just so chatty they had so much to say and they talked to me and they talked to each other and the the energy and the dynamic in the room was just was was phenomenal i remember coming back from my first round on the first campus and i talked to my advisor that night and i said it was amazing i said i have some amazing Data. Like it was just, you know, because you you kind of pilot a little bit your questions, but you don't always know how it's going to land. You don't really know. I mean, same thing with podcasting, right? We craft these questions, and then, you know, it's like, is this going to track with the person you're interviewing? And so the dynamics in the room for the focus group, I feel like that would be really hard to do virtually. Um, because there's just an energy, and especially around this kind of a like, especially around topics that are very intimate, very personal um, slightly risky or dangerous. Um, I think that would be hard. Um, yeah. Did
0: you find that as well in the one-on-one interviews you had with students that there was a quality of trust that had built, um, through them getting to observe you and see you in person?
1: Oh, I'm sure. For sure. I, I, think I, I, I would think it would be much harder for students, um, to, to feel as comfortable with me and to feel as, you know, open or, or willing to kind of share about these topics, um, which are very uncomfortable for a lot of them. Not everybody was uncomfortable, but I had some students who were particularly uncomfortable talking about when we started getting into some of the, you know, sexuality stuff. Um, you could just tell they were wildly uncomfortable with it, but they did. They did talk to me and they, they did open up, but you know, the awkwardness in that moment, um, I think that would be hard, um, over zoom in a, in a digital format. Um, but I, I can't say for sure. I can't do a complete, you know, apples to apples comparison. Cause I haven't, you know, I haven't done interviews over zoom, um, and I have one colleague in particular that I'm really interested to see how her project comes out because it's an amazing project, and she is doing her interviews over Zoom. Um, but um, yeah, and and with some sensitive topics, and I think you know that would be that will this that will be interesting to see as as people start writing about that um, and and um, unpacking that in the literature about what that what that is like um, in the comparisons. But I do think it would have been it would have been harder. I'm not saying it's impossible, but it, it, it there would have been different elements to definitely try to to navigate, and I'm not sure how that would affect the quality um, or the nature of of what we were able to bring out in those interviews, if that makes sense.
0: It does. I know we're running short of time today and I have so many more questions I would love to ask you, but in the few minutes we have left, what I would love to ask you is what was your biggest challenge in doing this research and what surprised you the most?
1: Oh. hmm, That's a good question. You have to give me a minute on that one. The biggest challenge. I, I think I would say, um, it probably was what I talked about earlier. I really struggled um, with the how honest, how open—not how honest, but how candid—to be with students. I really wanted to honor their willingness to be open and and candid with me, and I really took seriously, um, you know, that feminist research ethic of of equity and openness and attending to the power dynamics. And I really struggled with, I didn't want it to ever appear or them to ever feel or it to be that I wasn't being completely candid, but at the same time, I really had to be wise and discerning about how much to share when, you know, how much to divulge about my own history in those contexts because I didn't want to jeopardize, um, you know, their, their comfort level there or trigger something for them. If they're having, if they were in the middle of like a not good situation and they're on their own campus, you know, with policy or whatever, I didn't want to attach my, I didn't want to be attached with that, you know? So I really, that was really hard for me because I, I do pride myself on being a person with, you know, really deep integrity. And I really tried hard to honor, um, that part of the research process and how I wanted that to go. But I, I really, you know, you know, it was kind of like, is it necessary? Do I need to, is that, is that piece so necessary? You know, and so that's, and I did ultimately feel good um, about the decision and my approach going into it. And that's the thing about, about qualitative research or any research really, but qualitative especially, you have this whole plan of how you're going to do it. And then you go out there and you do it and you hope that you know, all of the, the ways that you anticipated this may or may not work actually, you know, comes comes out and so it uh, comes out well, <laughs> successfully. And so that did work. The, the, my plan going in of not necessarily, you know, I don't have to lay all this information out on the at, at the forefront, but if I was asked and if they did ask me and inquire about my own, you know, history that I would answer candidly. That did work for me because most, I don't think anyone asked me up front, they all, whoever did ask me, asked me at the end of a focus group, you know, as we were wrapping up or at the end of an interview after we had already, you know, spent an hour and a half together. Um, and that's when they did feel comfortable to share. And that's when I I could share. And and we already had that established rapport and relationship. So that was probably the hardest part for me was how to navigate and manage my previous experiences and roles in those campuses with the current role I had at that time as a researcher trying to really understand. Um, that that cultural moment and then what surprised me is that what you said also yeah um i was surprised at how much i learned honestly i thought that i knew that (laughs) that world and and i had thought a lot about relationships in those contexts um from my own experience going through it as an undergrad and just you know friends and my reading like i i felt really well versed in it and i was surprised at how much i learned it was amazing and how much um and how candid and how open students were, um, and the wonderful narratives that got, and how, you know, it, it was it was like a testament to the research process. You know what I mean? No matter how how much you think you know about something, if you really, you know, plan a good project, it's just amazing w- what comes, um, and and how much more you can know. And um, and it just reminds us of how much we don't know. No matter how much we think we know, there's still so much we don't know. And that surprised me the most is how much I really did learn. Um, and which was amazing, and not that I think I wasn't going to learn anything. I think I was just surprised at at what I did and um and how all the pieces kind of came together and fit. and And it was just a wonderful project that I really enjoyed doing, and and super grateful for the campuses to the campuses and to the students and participants who who really opened up and, and shared. So yeah, I hope that I hope that answers it.
0: It does, and it's a wonderful place for us to stop today. <laughs> I know you have to change hats again. I do and go off and and do your next thing. So I just want to thank you so much for being on the show today, Dr. Dana Malone, and telling us about qualitative research. I'm Dr. Christina Gessler. You've been listening to both co-hosts of The Academic <laughs> Life today here on New Books Network, and we both hope you will please join us again.